Today, instead of a guest, I want to talk to you about food and history, food and culture, food and family. There is no end to what is touched by food. This is episode 199. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. I can hardly believe that you and I have been having an ongoing conversation about food and drink and culture for so long. We have been doing this for almost four years, and I have learned that we will never run out of things to talk about. I'm extremely grateful to you, podcast listeners, for your continued engagement. Particular thanks goes to those of you who have written to me with suggestions about guests and about questions I should explore. Today, I want to share with you why I wrote my latest book, my first cookbook, Nanna's Creole Italian Table, Recipes and Stories from Sicilian New Orleans. It's published by LSU Press. The project started with my concern that my own children had little connection to their Sicilian heritage. I certainly didn't expect them to join Italian-American heritage organizations, but I had little practice little practices that they did not participate in that I saw as the end of passing down a connection to our family's past. I was really, really disappointed that they were not interested, for example, in my anise-flavored cookies. They preferred almond or vanilla-flavored, and to me, those anise flavors were my connection to Sicily and to all the people I knew from there. So I began to look for a first-hand account written by someone who had, as I had, grown up in that Sicilian milieu where people still spoke Sicilian, still played the mandolin or the concertina, or still made everything from scratch in the kitchen. But I couldn't find one, and I was really disappointed. So I decided that I had better write one write my own account because those younger than I am were even more removed than I am. And I was worried that if I died, that who else was going to do it? Because all of us are just getting older. I could find a lot written by historians all about the businesses started by the Sicilians. I could find all kinds of accounts of how many Sicilians came, where they settled, what they did when they got here. But I could find no first-person accounts, and that's what I was interested in. I wanted to leave an account of what it was like to grow up in this community. 
I also realized that my children only knew my mother. She spoke Sicilian, but in our home, we spoke English because my father, who was not Sicilian, only spoke English. My children did not grow up around anyone actually from Sicily. My mother was first generation. It was my grandmother, grandfather, great-grandparents who came together, not all together, but my great-grandparents and my grandmother. My grandmother came when she was 18, and she had younger siblings also as the whole family came over from Sicily. So I began my journey writing about growing up in the Sicilian community. And for me, that centered on my Nana's kitchen. It was easy for me to write about little events that happened in the kitchen, watching her make different things, doing the laundry together, little things that my grandfather did in the yard. They grew all this, so many of the Sicilian vegetables that have come to be really important in today's kitchen. For example, they grew arugula. You couldn't get arugula in the grocery store in those days. And their arugula was really sharp tasting. And I grew up loving that flavor. Radicchio, that wasn't something that you could get any everywhere. They grew fennel bulbs and lots and lots and lots of fennel. And also basil. We made pesto. We did all kinds of things that were really wonderful. My great, my grandmother, my nana, even made her own dried tomatoes, what, what you would now call sun-dried tomatoes, and she made all kinds of things with that. She did all of this in a mortar and pestle, and I just remember all of that. But pretty soon, it became clear to me that if I was writing this kind of a book, I really needed to explain why the Sicilians came in droves at the turn of the 20th century. Why did they come to New Orleans? So of course that meant that I had to do a deep dive into what the story of the Sicilians coming here. I had to learn all about the unification of Italy and Garibaldi and all kinds of things. And of course, I don't regret that journey, but I had to kind of curtail some of that conversation a little bit in the book. So I grew up with the awareness that this community was Sicilian and not Italian. So why did all those Sicilians come here? Well, of course you can go all the way back to the founding of New Orleans uh, in 1718 and find that there were Italians in various positions in the city. Um, these were obviously French-speaking Italians, but it was pretty fluid back then where boundaries were and everything. And so, you know, let's just face it, there were Italians here, but they weren't necessarily Sicilians. After the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, most of the enslaved people in Louisiana left the cane fields that were not far from New Orleans. And the Department of Labor in Louisiana 
knew that this was a problem because without people who had experience in cane fields trying to harvest the cane, crush it, and turn it into sugar was going to be a disaster. So there was going to be a real economic upheaval if there wasn't a way to replace the enslaved people who had been laborers laboring in the cane field. So they opened an office, a recruitment office in Palermo. And they did this because in Sicily, they were growing sugarcane. So the idea was here we can find laborers who are experienced and they can come to Louisiana and replace the enslaved people who are no longer willing to work on the cane fields. So they did recruit a number of people who came and when they came their passage was paid so they were essentially indentured servants. They, it was necessary for them to pay off their passage by their work and they lived in they lived on the plantations and paid rent for the cabins that were made available to them which were really the former cabins for the enslaved people and they did also do some things like grow some of the vegetables that weren't available here and but you know, getting sugar and some of the other things that they needed, flour, eggs, they they had to pay for those things also in the company store. So for for most people, this was a long journey to pay off their living, cost of living, as well as their passage. And when they were finished with that, most of them walked off the cane fields just as the enslaved people had, and that left the Department of Labor with another problem. Many of the people returned to Sicily, and but there were many who stayed. And because there were many who stayed, that meant that almost everybody in Sicily knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who lived in South Louisiana around New Orleans. So some of them stayed and went to Tangipahoa Parish, and they were in St. Bernard and Plaquemine, and they might have had truck farms and other things that were related to food. Some, some of them did other work, but regardless, a lot of them stayed. So what does that, what does that mean? Well, let's move forward now. We're past this period right after the Civil War, and everyone has paid off his passage. And then those people, of course, were almost all men who came, and they, the ones who stayed, started to intermingle with the people who were already living here in South Louisiana. Well, during the unification, Sicily was one of the holdouts. Now, obviously, Sicily was an important place in the middle of the Mediterranean, but as compared to the rest of Italy, it wasn't, it wasn't that important. It was the breadbasket, but it was not part of the same industrialization that happened in the northern part of Italy in the late 19th century. 
So the people in the north needed food, and food was brought up from Sicily to the north. And it meant that people in Sicily had very little opportunity, and some of them were really hungry. So because there seemed to be little opportunity in the south, a lot of people knew somebody in south Louisiana, and they said, hmm, I think we should go to south Louisiana. And tens of thousands of them did, roughly between 1885 and 1915. And that is when my family, or the people who were to become my family, came over. So they were part of this huge influx of people who came. And when they came, most of them settled in the French Quarter. It was such a huge number of people that the French Quarter was being called Little Palermo at the time. And because of that, you had many, many people who were living together in this area. And some of them sort of spilled over into Treme and into Marigny, which are two neighborhoods that are adjacent to the French Quarter. It was said that New Orleans was the place second only to Palermo, where Sicilian was spoken. So that's pretty pretty much the second largest Sicilian-speaking city in the world after Palermo. That's what New Orleans became. So obviously, there's going to be a huge, huge impact on the city of New Orleans because this is such a large number of people, and there are many, many things that you could talk about about how it has influenced life in New Orleans. One of my favorite sort of unknown stories has to do with breadcrumbs. New Orleans was already a frugal city. There's no way that you could say that the people of New Orleans were not frugal. They saved everything, they reused everything. Well, so did the Sicilians. And one of their practices was to keep stale bread and turn it into breadcrumbs. They used breadcrumbs for all kinds of things, including things like making some kinds of pasta. Anyway, they, they were making breadcrumbs, and one of the things that they realized is that they could grow such wonderful vegetables in this climate. And they grew tomatoes, which of course were from native to America, and they, they grew eggplants, they, they took the melaton, um, which is also native to America, and they adopted that. They were um, stuffing all of the vegetables, this is the Sicilians now, stuffing, stuffing all the vegetables with seasoned breadcrumbs, and also throwing in their crab meat and chopped shrimp and maybe a little ham and all the various things that they had, including cheese. And so when you think about stuffed bell peppers, if you are from the South, it is likely that your bell peppers will be stuffed with rice. But if you are from New Orleans, your bell peppers are going to be stuffed with breadcrumbs. Now, not just breadcrumbs. There'll be all kinds of other goodness in those breadcrumbs as I say, things like crab meat or chopped shrimp or ham or sausage. But 
the, the starch is going to be breadcrumbs. And people never really think about why it is that we use breadcrumbs and the rest of the South uses rice. And the reason is because of the Sicilians who came in such huge numbers to the city all at one time. In that 30-year period, just tens of thousands, some people say as many as 90,000, but I don't know that we can ever really quantify it. These are people who came directly to New Orleans. They didn't come through Ellis Island and then make their way down here. And it just has had a huge influence on the city. Well, so here I am writing this book. I've learned so much about the history of New Orleans and also Sicilian New Orleans. And I had written a whole lot of little stories and anecdotes about the parties, growing up a block from my grandparents, literally having my mother when I was as young as three, or maybe even two. It's hard for me to remember how old I was when I started doing this. We were a block away, and my, my mother would cross the street with me. We lived the second house from the corner, and my grandmother would stand on the sidewalk in front of her house and wave to me. My mother would cross the street with me, and then I would start running all the way to my grandmother. And my mother didn't have to walk down the street with me. She just set me on my way. And I just remember having such fun doing that, being able to run to my grandmother. She would pick me up. It was just wonderful. And then we would spend the day together until it was time for me to go home. And I never went home the same way because my mother didn't wait for me. She would always come and get me. She'd walk down to my grandmother's house and then they'd have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine. And then my mother and I would walk back home together. So what a just joyous kind of remembrance all of that was. I realized that part of the joy that came from my grandmother's kitchen, my Nana's kitchen, was that she allowed me to cook with her. Now, my mother was an excellent cook, but my mother had grown up with one foot in New Orleans and one foot in the Sicilian culture. And so she made all kinds of things that my grandmother didn't really make. She made red beans and rice, and she made all kinds of gumbos. She just really had been assimilated in both New Orleans cooking and Sicilian cooking. But she liked to be alone in the kitchen, and it was kind of her kingdom there in the kitchen. And she put out some marvelous, marvelous dishes, but I really wasn't a part of them. But in my Nana's kitchen, I was allowed to participate. I could stir, I could chop, I could tear up lettuce or arugula. I could do all kinds of chores that my grandmother gave me. And I really felt like I was participating in the making of whatever meal there was. So I also saw that my grandmother would watch the things that my, my father, who was not Sicilian, ate. And then she would comment on those things and she would remake them in her own way. Two of those things have to do with deviled eggs. She thought that the deviled eggs that he liked were very bland. 
And so she spiced them up with a little Parmesan, a little anchovy. She really um, made deviled eggs that are unlike deviled eggs that most Southerners eat. And she also had her way with pimento cheese. My father used to go to a gas station in New Orleans, actually it was on the outskirts of New Orleans, where the, the owner of the gas station and his wife worked. And the wife always made pimento cheese and it was sold out of a little refrigerator in the gas station. And my father really liked this version of pimento cheese, so he would always bring it home. And my grandmother was appalled. Not that he had pimento cheese, but that the pimento cheese was made with canned pimentos. Now, if you're Sicilian, you are very, very familiar with blistering your red bell peppers and letting them steam in a paper bag, then taking off the skin and cutting your uh, red bell peppers that have been steamed and blistered and cutting them into long strips. So my grandmother said, you know, I really don't think you should be eating pimento cheese made with canned pimentos because my grandmother made everything, absolutely everything from scratch. Her mayonnaise, her mustard, she made ketchup, she made everything, absolutely everything from scratch. And so she would make a pimento cheese that was a mixture of cheddar and shredded parmesan and she would make it with real pimentos that she had made as opposed to canned pimentos so there was always a freshness about her cheese her pimento cheese and my grand my father grew to really love it and she would make it for him every week she would send me home with the little container that had pimento cheese for him to nibble on all week. And it was just his, nobody else except my, my mother or, my, or I could have a little bit or maybe my little brother. Um, but only when it was offered to us, it wasn't ours to go and sort of cannibalize in the refrigerator. So those things also became part of the story. And so it became necessary to turn this book into not only a memoir that claimed that also dealt with history, but also it had to be a cookbook. Now, this was my very first cookbook. I had four books under my belt, but this, the fifth book, is my first cookbook. And I have to say, it was really the kind of thing that made me want to rip my hair out. I am not a cook who measures. My grandmother was not a cook who measured, and neither was my mother. So I had very, very little experience with measuring cups. I'm also not a baker, so the only thing that would have given me experience in the kitchen with measuring cups and teaspoons and whatever would have been if I had really loved baking. But I really don't, because... I prefer to eat savory food. I'm the kind of person that when my meal is over and it's time for dessert, if you asked me what I wanted, I would probably say a piece of fried chicken over a piece of cake or a pie or ice cream or anything like that. So I didn't have any experience. 
I had been trying to write down things that my grandmother made as she got older and as she relied on me as I got older to do more and more of the work. My grandmother had, because she was so frugal, a teacup that had lost its handle and she used that cup as her measuring cup. So she might say to me, okay, we use three cups, three heaping cups of this flour or whatever it was. It's usually flour. And I would have to measure that and put it into a regular one cup measure until I was able to figure out how much her teacup would really hold. So that was the method that I used myself when I wrote this cookbook. I would look at how much oregano, dried oregano I needed in something, and I would, instead of putting it straight into the pot, I would put it into my hand, and then I would put it into a measuring spoon, and then I would write it down. I found this to be the most horrible, tedious thing in the world, and I really hated it. I'm very happy with the results. I'm not sorry that I did it, but I am not a good cookbook writer um, because of this. And I also found that I wanted to share some of the other things that my grandmother did. Like she always made vinegar. There was always white wine vinegar, champagne vinegar, red wine vinegar, apple scrap vinegar, always all these vinegars going in her house. And of course, none of this was done with measurements. And so the idea that one would do this was something that um, I had to write about in the book too. And I found that actually easier to do than something that required measurements um, or where there was an expectation of measurements. Another thing that I really loved writing about was my grandmother's ironing water. So everything used to be sprayed in those days. She would she had really bad arthritis, so she would sit at her ironing board and she would iron everything. She ironed my grandfather's boxer shorts, she ironed handkerchiefs, she ironed sheets, she ironed everything. And she wanted everything to smell good. So for her things, she made a kind of lavender water. That was one of her favorite things. She also made a rose water, and they had to be diluted pretty much so that they wouldn't stain anything. And for my grandfather, she made a rosemary water. And so she wanted him to have things that smelled of rosemary as opposed to roses. And that was always a, a fun thing to to talk about and to share with other people because it was a really big part of growing up. And now if I have a handkerchief and I put a little essential rose oil on it or have some kind of perfume that I can spray on it that smells like roses, it makes me think of my grandmother. So I hope that being able to talk to you about this book, which I dedicated to my children and my grandchildren, is something that will make you understand a little bit more about me, a little bit more about the Sicilian community in New Orleans, 
and a little bit more about immigrants in general and the children of immigrants, because I think all of the children of immigrants have many, many of the same experiences. The foods that they eat might be different, but trying to bridge two cultures at the same time is not always an easy thing. And expectations of parents or grandparents which are based on their culture might not be the same as the expectations that you derive from school or your peers. And so it's really something that I hope can be meaningful, even if you are not of Sicilian or even Italian heritage. I wanted to share that with you. And it seemed to me that I could just talk to you directly and didn't really need somebody to interview me. And so I hope that you have enjoyed this because I have really enjoyed being able to talk to you about it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.